From the projects to Paris, one woman's real life story told in brutal honesty about surviving the vices of her family and neighborhood only to be thrust into a world that neither wants nor accepts her is a sobering reminder of the disparities that plague citizens of a nation still ignoring its history. Her undying drive to be accepted takes her in and out of Ivy League schools, prisons and psychiatric hospitals until she's finally drawn across the ocean to expatriation and rebirth. The woman's name, Janet McDonald. The book, Project Girl. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! Hi readers, this is Kari. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Alexis, my dear, dear, dear friend, how are you today? Girl, I am doing all right. I um, tried to do that journaling thing we talked about last week. Oh, let's and talk honey. about it. You know, if you have, if you don't remember, audience, we said we were going to journal every day and check back about it because keeping a diary was a theme in our Silent Patient episode. How did it go? I think I'm going to get I'm murdered and no one will know why. <laughs> Because you didn't write it in your diary. Because I didn't write it in my diary. So I wrote one day and I did. (laughs) The day before I said, I want to finish this article for work. I want to run this this amount of miles and I want to read this book uh, for my faith. And I did those things. And then I I just rewarded myself by relaxing for six days. Yeah. Well, I only wrote for two days, I think, maybe a day and a half. But um, I was food journaling. And then after that, I was like, I know what I ate. So (laughs) I don't need this shame you trying to bring upon me for the egg food young I have taken into my body. I know what I was doing when I did it. (laughs) Settle down. It's not that serious. Calm down, journal. (laughs) Who even wrote this? Oh, me? I ain't going to do that again. So journaling ain't for us. Is that what we're saying? Or we need to force ourselves to do it. We need to force ourselves to do it. But and why, also, um, again, we're trying to save our lives. <laughs> yeah, because if somebody breaks into our house, we got to write it in our journal. And if you have That's no right. idea what we're talking about, listen to the last episode. <laughs> That's right. Speaking so, of which. I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think <laughs> you have to make journaling work for you. So if it's not a daily thing for you, um, if it's not a daily thing for you, then make it an every other day or once a week thing. And um, let that. Let I'll try once live a week with that. because I know I did do some things just because it was my goal to do it. And I had written it down in my journal. OK, so I like that weekly. I'll try that and I'll check back with you next. OK, episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever. Oh, I also would like to share that a friend sent me flowers and that was just a really good feeling. I was like, that is so precious. Oh, flowers and chocolate I, <gasps> gave me warm fuzzies. Yep. Stop it. Real friends. What about your friends? I know. Is they going to give you flowers? They were white roses. Stop it. Yeah. White roses really for a black queen. I know that's right. Hey, now, was hey. this a female friend or is this a friend that I need to tell your brothers about? You don't need to tell nobody <laughs> I know about it. It is one of my male friends. Thank oh. you very much. Snitch, you know I love snitching. I'm going to tell. I'm going to tell. Okay, let me jot that away in my journal. So each week, readers, we select a theme to discuss based on the book we're reading. And the theme this week is how to be an expatriate in 2020. 
Hey. And if you don't know, oh, maybe you don't know what an expatriate is. Not you, Alexis. I know you know. Um, but an expatriate is just someone who lives abroad in another country for, you know, a short period of time or even a long period of a time. Long, so if you're yeah. going to Thailand for three months backpacking, yes, you are an expatriate. If you're following your um, love interest to another country to meet their family and see how they interact in their own environment for two months, you are technically a good deci- de- deciding factor to know if you're an expatriate. Did you apply for a visa of any sort? <laughs> have you considered having to apply for a visa? You are an expatriate. Um, have, have you ever dabbled with expatriatism? Yeah, I've I've wanted to do it, um, but I've I've so I haven't dabbled in. I've just done the research about how and how much fun it would be to do that. It's something it's always been a dream of mine. So what, I know you have though. Well, what draws you to um, a life in another country? To living in um, another country, I I just want to be free and set apart. <laughs> <laughs> and what like anonymity is your yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah. for some reason I uh, long for that anywhere I could be less known I feel like it's a better place <laughs> for me to so be because she's so famous that's okay <laughs> uh, narcissistic move you know guys I'm just too popular everywhere I go I have to leave the country soon I have to leave the planet because folks be knowing me okay right. no, I really love um, different cultures and I just want to experience them in whole and being present in that um, place yep mm-hmm. what countries would you consider moving to if I could move to Cuba, I would move there. Mm-hmm. I could see um, you in Cuba. Uh huh. If I could move to um, some other island, let's see. I think Cuba's like my favorite right now. So what now, draws you to Cuba? The being able to disconnect, um, oh, the lack of yeah, uh, cell phone. <laughs> um, cell it phone. seems mm-hmm. like a negative, but it can be a plus. Mm-hmm. I just felt so much peace when I was there, mm-hmm. and and then the simplicity of life. Mm-hmm. Um, those things I appreciate a lot. Yeah. Um, there is like a competition, right. That comes with capitalistic societies, um, like a a corporate ladder. Sure. Mm -hmm. And not having that even on social media, there's a bit of a competition there uh, with some people. So to have to completely unplug, man, we did make it without cell phones at one time. Right. And constant internet access. We We did. did. That was a life. Well, I enjoyed my time with you in Cuba, even though you slept for most of it. Okay. (laughs) And I also made us miss a whole day because we missed our flight. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, hopefully you can go back there sooner than later. Uh, I found a few articles that uh, gave examples of expatriates and also talked about tips for moving abroad. Some of these were specific to black people. A lot of people, um, a lot of black people might feel like it's garbage here and I want to move out the country and Mm -hmm. flee racism. Yeah. Eh, eh, eh. racism is everywhere <laughs> also everywhere. economic disparities everywhere mm-hmm. so there's no perfect country right right however some have found that um some black americans have found that their status i'll say as both american and black um helps them feel freer in some countries. And um, a lot of people talked about Thailand being those like one of those countries, although black people who live there, especially of African descent who live and work there, feel completely differently. Um, but Thailand was on there, Costa Rica, um, New Zealand, uh, even Hong Kong. And I was surprised to find Dubai, which is very expensive. So if someone is considering expat- an expatriation to Dubai, 
Wow. Kudos to you. Can I borrow $20? But this is definitely on the list. A lot of people have in mind a lot of black people when they think of moving out of America. And there's a great article, five places black people can move when they've had enough of America on the route.com. <laughs> so what you came for? How to uh-huh. do it, though? How do you yep. pick up and leave? Here are some tips from Go Abroad, Western Union. There are a few resources out there. And I think some government agencies I pulled some of this from. And then I'll throw some of my own experience in here. Um, So number one, number one, do your research. Yes. And by that, I mean, visit your government um, agency's website and the government agency's website of the country that you plan to move to. Find out the specifics, up to date specifics about the visa you will need. If you do not obtain the correct visa, it can literally ruin your life. And they will treat you like you smuggle drugs from, you know, across the world if your visa expire and you end up at that airport. However, that said, it ain't that hard to follow the rules unless you like in love and you don't want to leave. And then, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that happens. But don't believe, leave, leave, girl, leave guy and uh, apply for the right visa. When it's time to leave, right? When it's time to leave. So oftentimes, if you're staying three months or less um, in Europe, you do not need an official visa. If you're not trying to obtain work in that country, you don't need any sort of sponsorship. It's just like a vacation. It's just like travel to the government in the government's eyes. If you're working remotely for the American government, just make sure you are paying American taxes. And if you're staying three months or less, usually that's fine. However, um, make sure you research for your stay what kind of visa you need, if any. Even when we went to Cuba, we needed a card, which they called a visa. It's just like, I don't even, what is that thing? That's not even truly a visa, but that's what they call it. And they yep, stamp yep. it. And it's so it's easy to get. Mm-hmm. What it cost us, like 25 bucks? Yep. Something, yeah, something crazy cheap. But if we hadn't had it, we would have been denied admission into the country. And I really don't know what we would have did. <laughs> so just make sure you have your stuff. Um, we would have had to get out. Yeah. Period. (laughs) Uh, Research cost of living in the area you want to move to. Everyone loves Paris. Can you afford to live in Paris? Also, do you love the beach? Maybe an urban environment isn't for you. Make it do try to uh, blend what you're naturally interested in with your destination um, to a point. Um, And then I just have some things that have really helped me. So first, Visit after you've done your research and you know logistics, um, you understand what transportation is like and you understand what the government, your government and their government expects from you. Visit first. Visit first, even if it's for a week or two. Make friends with other expats. Keep in touch as you plan your move back home. So go there, make friends with people who have done what you want to do. Um, Keep in touch with them. Ask them honest questions, appropriate questions, and then base your decisions partly on what you found, your research and on what they've experienced. Um, Secondly, sell all your earthly belongings, kind of. (laughs) It helps to truly be free. Yeah, I mean. As we get older, that might not be realistic. You might necessarily want to sell your home or your condo when you're just going somewhere for three months. But what if you get there and you love it and you want to stay longer than three months and the opportunity presents itself um, and you can stay? You don't want any uh, possessions to be tying you 
to your uh, original home. So make it as easy as possible for yourself by selling what you can. Um, Three, take the language seriously. I have found private tutors on Craigslist that were invaluable, especially if they are tutors that come from the country you're going to. You You can ask them. They become like... I mean, once you move there, they like low key cheap therapists because you'll be like some days, you know, I can't take this. I um, sneezed in the market and people looked at me like I had killed the baby <laughs> and they'll just be like, oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and you just feel normal. You have this bridge between your old world and your new world. Say it again. Mm-hmm. A resource, an yeah. immediate resource. Mm-hmm. So remember I said find those expats in that country. Mm-hmm. Um Now I'm going to tell you, avoid them as much as possible. If you've made good friends, of Mm. course, keep keep in touch with them. But get uncomfortable as quickly as you possibly can. Meet friends that barely speak your language, (laughs) maybe at community centers, through your faith, even waitressing part time. Now, some countries take waiting tables very seriously and you just might not be qualified. (laughs) But some type of service job where you're interacting with people. Meet people and really, really talk to them. Try to have uh, real conversations. Even if you don't understand 80% of what they're saying, it will benefit you in the long run. Where you are is not an extension of your home. It is a completely new place with its own culture. Respect that. Don't try to make it for you. Make yourself fit it wherever you are. Mm -hmm. Um, Look into English teaching programs and being... um, working for those remotely while you're still at home, if possible. One good one is TEFL, teaching English as a first language, foreign language. I looked that up when I was considering moving out of the country. That's Mm -hmm. one of the programs that I looked up. They have like a little certification thing. And I was going to take that. Mm. I was in Milwaukee at the time. Oh, okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you can also certify remotely. It's a very popular one. That Again, it's TEFL, Tom Edward Frank Lancaster. Um, and then as you are um, looking for remote work, also remember the skills that you naturally possess. And one of the big ones is your language, especially if you teach English. If you don't mm-hmm. get in with a TEFL program right away, consider uh, posting your skills on Craigslist and letting people know, hey, I can teach you English in public places, <laughs> in coffee shops or in parks. You know, let me know. Also, keep a diary. <laughs> if they try to kill you, write it in your diary. Just kidding. Okay. Um, next, use what language you do know. If you know five words, overuse them because truthfully, you overuse your English words all the time. Me, so, I do. I do. Okay. People who say awesome can never stop saying awesome. awesome. You have said like, 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 you have no idea how many times today. So, awesome. all those foreign words you know use them all right then yeah okay and then lastly remember it doesn't have to be forever keep a few months worth of money to move back with if you can but stick it out as much as possible remember being uncomfortable means progress if you move to another country and was like oh this is fine it's just like chicago it's just like new york you're doing it wrong (laughs) you're doing it wrong it ain't supposed to feel just like nothing it is what it is Mm -hmm. and that's it anything you want to add no, I love it. Um, I remember after I left Paris, I was like, I could truly live here. So, well, <sighs> duh, <laughs> a London too. But you know, those places are really expensive. Maybe consider, yeah. you know, Cuba, Greece, Italy. <laughs> and you know what? Coronavirus changes everything. So, everything, everything. Yeah. 
So mm-hmm. maybe right now is not the time, but you know, if that's been in your heart and you are seriously considering it, it is possible to become an expat. Oh, that sounds wonderful. So, okay, let's move on. We are back. Hey. Hey, Alexis, with your fine self. That's my friend. Okay. Hey. You brightening up my Zoom. Can you give <laughs> us a little information on Janet McDonald and her inspiration, perhaps, for a Project Girl? Okay. So, again, I've got another uh, <laughs> memoir, if you will. So, right, you don't there's really not need... much <laughs> okay. to share. But I am going to talk about it, okay? So, Project Girl was her first book, was Janet McDonald's first book. It was published in 1999 and it was selected by the Los Angeles Times Book Review um, as the book of the year. Okay. Um, she is best known, actually, though, for her collection of young adult novels. She's got, I think, six of them, and at least four of them have been translated to French. Janet McDonald died in April of 2007. In Paris, France, of colon cancer. That's what I have. Yeah, I didn't know she died until um, I was researching something for this book. And I was shocked. Yeah, me too. I, I read this whole book and was like, oh, wait, she did? It really, <laughs> it really even tinged the book. In, uh, anyway, we'll move on. But that really broke my heart knowing she it had passed did. away from colon it cancer. Did. It did. It did. Mm-hmm. I agree. So can you give us a brief synopsis of the book without spoilers? Okay, here we go. Uh, Jenna McDonald is a young woman battling with identity issues and trying desperately to fit in and meet the expe- meet the expectations of success placed upon her. So, Kari, what were your first mm. thoughts? Well, I heard Janet first in NPR. I think This American Life, I'm almost mm. like 99% sure. Um, and they were talking about expats and she was saying how as a black American she found Paris to be so liberating as have many people from America mm-hmm. I mean it used to be a big place for black Americans to move right. to from um Josephine Baker of course to I think Richard Wright and um <laughs> Hughes Langston Hughes so it was like a black renaissance going on in Paris in um you know back back in the day so she felt like as an African living in Paris, the experience is definitely different, but she would even downplay how good her French was so that they would know right away that she was American and doors would open up for her. And so she recognized that there was some uh, unfairness and it was still like, <laughs> you know, wrong mm-hmm. the way black people were treated there. But for her specifically, it was a lot better than what she was getting in New York and then later in Seattle. And she just found it to be a kindred um like if it was a home for her, it always followed yeah. her since the first time she visited um, Paris. So yeah, uh, my first thoughts were, I liked the way she spoke, how she kept things matter of fact and spoke frankly. And I was wondering what her memoir would be about. And then I read it. Here we are. What were your first thoughts? It was interesting. I liked, I enjoyed listening to that um, piece that she did with This American Life and that drew me to the book. So when I first opened the book, I was um glad to be hearing her story I, I expected differently but um as I got into it I understood and this book yeah. is really hard to find it is you know I try yeah. really hard really hard so did how you did you get up, it I ended up ordering it on Amazon and it took like three weeks to get here because you they told you it wasn't a priority 
<laughs> Which is great. How are you going to tell me what ain't a priority? It's a priority for me. You're going to have to wait because we don't care. You don't need toilet <laughs> tissue. So you go wait. That's what they said. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, coronavirus. Okay. <laughs> well, then we're ready for a yes, deep dive into Project Girl by Janet McDonald with spoilers. Yeah. We're going to spoil this book. But mm-hmm. it's a memoir, so it won't really be spoiled. Okay, take it away, Alexis. I want to start by saying this book has an occurrence of R-A-P-E. Okay. And let's get into it. Part one, Janet grew up in the Farragut Farragut housing project in Brooklyn, New York. She is the fourth of seven children, and she has two older brothers, Luke and Ernest, and an older sister, and Anne bullied her because she peed in the bed. <laughs> she was always peeing in the bed. Her sister Anne called her pissy. Miss Pissy or something. <laughs> she was always yep, calling her names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she had two younger brothers, Victor and Kevin, and then a younger sister named Jean. She was truly the middle of the middle child. I, too, am the middle of the middle. Her but parents, you're the oldest girl. So that's so you're a not discount. the middle of the middle. She was not the oldest or youngest of anything. You are special. I'm not going to let you <laughs> deny your speciality. And okay, I won't let ahead. you either. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so her parents are Willie and Florence, and they migrated from Alabama to New York in the 1940s after her father had just come from the military. He went to look for a job um, at the bus company, and they told him that Negroes could only get jobs cleaning windows. They could not drive the bus. He immediately packed his stuff that day and took his girlfriend, and they took a bus to New York. Education was important to her father. He wanted his children to study hard so they could get good jobs. The children were expected to go to college and stay off of welfare. Um, A good education, he said, is the ticket and you have to grab it. Janet had high reading scores and she attracted the attention of teachers. And this gave her parents a sense of pride. I think her mother told her, always told her, you got that from me. You got your thinking, your brain thinking from me. Mm-hmm. So um, by the fourth grade, she was identified as being college material. And that's something a brand is essentially that kind of stuck to her. She held on to that college material. So when she started school, she was in a school with predominantly black and Puerto Rican um, children. But the teaching staff were almost exclusively white. From kindergarten to ninth grade, she spent her education in neighborhood schools, and she only had two black teachers. As a young girl, um, she recalls the experience of hearing about a 10-year-old girl that had been found by the police. She'd been thrown from the roof of one of the project's 14-story buildings. They would later find that the child was murdered by a 17-year-old Boy Scout that Janet herself used to play with. Um, They put him in a psychiatric institution. Janet, along with five other classmates when she was in the fourth grade, was skipped to the sixth grade because of her high score on a citywide reading test. In junior high, Janet was placed in a program for gifted students and selected for the math team. She also had an opportunity to take on a language course. And while most people selected Spanish because that was widely spoken in the community, Janet selected French because she always strove to be different. Everyone in 
and her family didn't do well, um, particularly Anne. She was home. Um, she often got poor grades, poor, poor cars, but she had a creative side to her. The fact that Anne did poorly in school and Jen excelled in school, put a further dent in their relationship and again set Janet up for more bullying by her sister. Meanwhile, the neighborhood was changing. Job opportunities in the area were limited, so more of the tenants were recipients of the state's welfare program. When initially, when the when they moved to the area, you had to have a job, and I think you also had to have um, two parents in the household. And you couldn't be on welfare to get in. Right. Part two. In 1968, Janet was accepted into the best high school in Brooklyn, but the school was on the other side of town in the middle of a middle class Jewish neighborhood. And while she could have gone to a neighborhood school, none of the schools were college bound. And if you remember, she had it ingrained in her that she was going to college. She was college material. Most of the schools, the neighborhood schools were trade schools, um, schools that didn't require college. Janet had a long ride to the white school where she was known or knew no one. And while she found friends, she was always trying to be accepted by others. Her music, her music talents, excuse me, her music interests continue to expand. She gained appreciation for artists such as Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Joni Mitchell. She was like hippy dippy for a sec. Mm hmm. <laughs> and when she joined high school for the first time, her schoolwork truly became a challenge. I think a problem was that she was often comparing herself to others. This was a big deal for her. Middle child syndrome. Very much so. Um, she was now being exposed to topics that she wasn't exposed to at home. And also they weren't talked about in school. And that was politics. And this was an environment of students that often talked about politics. The environment was intimidating. And this left Janet silent. She rather listened to the people than give her own personal input. She was she met someone that was a self-proclaimed Black Panther. Already, uh, Janet had identified Angela Davis as a heroine for her, who at the time was on the FBI's most wanted list. She wore Janet wore her hair as Angela Davis did in an afro. And she also wore these wire rimmed glasses. So she was often told she actually looked like Angela. She was trying to be a little militant. Yeah. Yeah. The white teachers seemed concerned primarily with the progress of the white students. So the lack of interest um, really had an impact on Janet. You know, and I also say this goes back to the middle child syndrome because you're in the middle. You want you still want some attention and she wasn't getting it in school. And so and her real, grades every suffered. kid in school deserve you're there for specific attention. You yeah. shouldn't be just left on your own like. But they didn't really have any high hopes for these black kids anyway, it sounds right. like. Right. Not, not in this environment. Not in this environment. So the lack of interest affected her, not only her personally, but her grades. She was failing academically. She failed gym. She was dropped from the how math you program. you gym, Janet? I don't think you went. <laughs> That's how you failed gym. Yes, that is how you failed gym. <laughs> she was even kicked out of French class for Three tardies for three tardies. Oh, my goodness. And the Is teacher, uh, I don't think it's bad. Three tardies. I mean, good I don't grief. think so. How are you going to kick me out for not coming? 
That don't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> the teacher didn't seem to care about any explanation Janet would have had. She was accused of disrespecting the language and she was warned to never take French again. The white teacher seemed concerned primarily with the progress of the white students. I was stung by their lack of interest in me and started skipping classes. I faltered academically, failed gym, and was dropped from the math team. Madame Gruyere kicked me out of French class because of three latenesses and was indifferent to my explanation that I lived on the other side of Brooklyn. With typical French fanaticism, she accused me of disrespecting the language and warned me never to take French again. But the most humiliating blow was landed by my drama teacher, who informed me in an accent rivaled only by Robert De Niro's enraging bull that I had no future in acting because of my southern accent a sound I associated with dewy-eyed stupidity and dim-witted hospitality. What Southern accent? I wasn't even Southern. I vowed never, ever to utter the Southernisms I'd heard at home like, well, knock me down and fan me with a brick. Or daddy's incomprehensible favorite, a hard head makes for a soft dinghy. Or take leave of someone by saying, I have to see a man about a horse. I blamed my Southern parents, the obvious culprits. Oh, how they had failed me. No piano lessons, no dance classes, no summer camp in the Poconos. But what do they give me? A Southern accent? It was the final insult in a school career that had gone sour. My only success was in English class, where the teacher liked my written composition. Small compensation for someone nicknamed college material. Meanwhile... The neighborhood was continuing to change. So Janet's in high school. Um, she's a little younger than most people in her class, remember. Uh, heroin had become the drug of choice in the community. Children that she used to play with were now teenagers selling and using drugs. Older sister Anne had gotten kicked out of high school. She was in a high school called Fashion Industries because of her interest in the fashion. Um, she was kicked out of school for possessing a white powder uh, despite her claims of innocence. She said she was just scratching her nose. Her brother had returned home from an army stint with a heroin addiction, always trying to be different and looking for an escape. Janet started watching golf on TV. She became fascinated with it. You know, I never noticed in the book where she said she played golf. Did she ever she say would that? just watch it, which she was, was crazy to me. <laughs> At that age, fine. I mean, but that's for real sleepy time television. <laughs> <laughs> Agree. <laughs> she was literally just watching it and enjoying it because she just it wanted to so be different. different from the world around her. She was captivated by it. Yeah. Escapism TV. Um, this was another opportunity for her sister Anne to tease her. She's like, you always trying to be white. Ugh. Wait, wait. I went in on this one. You peed a bed. Uh, you know, you, you failed gym and now you love golf. I'm going to tease you. Sorry. I don't care if I'm a drug addict. At least I don't love golf. She really, <laughs> she really was getting it. So and so Janet continued to feel like she just wasn't fitting in at home. She wasn't fitting in at school. This eventually wears on people if you feel like you don't fit in anywhere. Um, she was stealing. She was at a record store one time and she stole um records, Judy Collin records, and the the security guy. I think they asked her, "What? Why are you doing this?" And she said she was stealing them for her friends. They was like, wow. "You can't." You can't buy your friends. Really, she was stealing them for herself, okay? 
No, she was stealing them to make friends. She would tell people, I can give you this record if you want. She, she did that wa- too, but she was stealing them for herself. Okay, <laughs> listen, she was mostly stealing to make either way, you know, but still, come on. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think she even offered them to somebody and it was like, uh, no. And she brought it anyway. <laughs> she really wanted a friend. Yeah, She was trying to buy her friends with these stolen goods. Stolen goods. Uh, <laughs> so she was turned home. And of course, after she got caught stealing and her parents scolded her, her father was like, welfare prison, welfare and prison if you don't get your act together. Can I just say something as someone that doesn't have kids? Don't tell your kids they're going to end up in welfare or prison. Because <laughs> then you know what's going to happen? They're going to end up in welfare or prison. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just don't do that. Also, yeah, sure. I mean, if you need to be on welfare, be on welfare. But that's another topic. Okay, go ahead. Another topic. Her big sister. Again. That's what it's there for if you need it for your welfare. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. So her big sister Anne, you know her bully, saw this as another opportunity to tease her. You a klepto, you a klepto, you a klepto. You peed a man, you failed Jim, you like golf, and now you a klepto. You are an endless source of material. I'm going to tease you till you die. In fact, I might tease you to death. (laughs) I think she, anyway, at school. She finally found somebody that she thought she could just kind of connect with. It was this guy named Clyde in her science class. He was a long haired hippie and Janet was attracted to his rebelliousness. So she made a copy of her homework and she made a copy of her homework and she kind of chased him out after class. She was like, hey, 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 Clyde, Clyde, um, I know you didn't have time to write the notes, but I wrote them for you. Here you go. He was like, okay, thank you. (laughs) Random black girl. Great. Thanks. (laughs) Well, they did become friends. Uh, Clyde also introduced her to smoking weed. And along with several other of their hippie friends, they created a newspaper called the Midnight Rambler. This Midnight Rambler included... um, I think it was against the government uh, kind of newspaper. This was right? a commie paper, a commie newsie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's in high school, skipping classes, failing, creating communist newspapers. Yeah, so it was their goal to kind of distribute these papers and get them out there. And so she had, she wrote all the articles in there and she took the papers home because they were going to distribute them the next day. And her mother saw her sneaking the paper in the house and told her to get them papers out the house. And she said, what is the, what are those papers? She was like, oh, just a school paper. And if they're school papers, why? are you sneaking them in the house young lady if you don't get them papers out of my house before the morning they're gonna be in the incinerator that's what mama said in 1970 she finished school at Erasmus that was the name of the uh, school she went to but her grades were so poor that she had to attend summer school to qualify um, for even a basic general diploma and then she spent an additional semester completing an ap- academic diploma just so she could go to college. But now think about it. She wasn't doing that well in school. She hadn't connected with anyone. It didn't seem like anyone is interested in her success. So if she wanted to go to college, she didn't really have the support she needed or the knowledge that she needed to go on to college. Or the self-confidence to survive in a a higher education environment and a college environment. Yep. Yeah. She's mm-hmm. still young. She was skipped in school. So she's like, what, 19, 18? Oh, no. At this point, oh, she's sorry. 16. She's like 16. Yeah. She's like 16. <laughs> yeah, of course. So she mm-hmm. missed all the deadlines. So she left high school with really no 
plans. None at all. And too young to work. She, it was nothing she could do. Mm-hmm. Her mother was like, get a job as a telephone <laughs> operator. Because that was like a dream job um, for the community back then. It was it was solid. You got a steady income. You could take care of your family. It was the thing to do. But she was really too young to be working. And so one night she was watching the Miss Universe pageant. I think she had been watching the wide world of sports. And somehow she had switched over to pageantry. So she was watching the Miss Universe pageant with her um, her bully sister, Anne. And she noticed that a classmate had become first runner up. Can I tell you, I have felt this. I have been in my dorm um, procrastinating and I look on the TV and Dwayne Wade is being drafted by the NBA. And I just saw him in the hallway <laughs> and I can't take the pressure. And then also uh, somebody I went to baby school with. Novak is also um, enlisted in the NBA and they just millionaires all of a sudden. And I haven't even finished my paper (laughs) and I just don't feel like going on. It's not going to work for me. Uh, Like you, Janet felt. Well, like you, Janet felt that same pressure. She like, she felt like a failure. Mm -hmm. It ain't even that you want what they particularly have, but you kind of do. And it ain't even that you don't want them to have it, but you kind of (laughs) don't. She felt like she needed to make some changes and quick. But then she heard an advertising on the radio about a school called Harlem Prep. And their goal was to get students ready for college. Get them in there and get them going. So she immediately told her mother about this and she asked for some money and her mother refused to give her the money. Um, (laughs) She said, black people can't run no school. Wow. (laughs) But all I could hear was my mother's voice directing me to the telephone company. That is, until I heard that other voice on the Soul Music Radio Station. The voice, black, male, and smooth, was soothing. Listen up, brothers and sisters. If you think you have what it takes to go to college but don't have a high school diploma, come on uptown to Harlem Prep. Pass the test and they'll do the rest. It wasn't quite God informing me that I'd been adopted, but it sure came close. The problem was, not only did I already have a high school diploma, I had two, one general and one academic. I hope they'd take me anyway and help me find my way to college. I ran to the kitchen where mother was washing dishes. Guess what? I heard on the radio that there's a school in Harlem that'll help you get into college. A black folks don't know how to run no school, she responded, her old South upbringing showing. I needed money for transportation. Can I have subway money? No, you don't have no business going all the way up there to Harlem. Please? No. Maybe she was right, but maybe not. This could be my chance to get into college, and I wasn't about to let a subway token stop me. Without a word, I left the apartment and headed up the hill past the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. As I passed below the elevated tracks, the D train roared overhead. I screamed out loud, something Luke told me he did to vent his feelings. Perhaps everybody wailed under the tracks as they made their way to and from the projects. Years later, a priest was found stabbed to death right there. He too might have cried out. But on that day, there was only a project girl screaming with hope. The clerk was busy selling tokens and not a transit cop was in sight. Swiftly, I hopped over the turnstile, ran down the steps, and jumped on the A-train rambling into the High Street Station. Although Harlem Prep was designed as a one-year college prep school, Janet attended Harlem Prep for two years. She just did. You wasn't know you could prepared. go back to high school after you get your diploma. Oh, 
I just, I want to know why. I've never heard of this in my life. <laughs> this is a girl that has two high school diplomas. Already. And she's going back for a third. Already. Can we just get that again? I had to stop and breathe after this. I'm like, why is this she doing is- this to herself? She got out so early. Somebody yeah. help her. Yeah, for real. Yeah. <sighs> so much. So much. So anyway, Janet really loved the environment of Harlem Prep. It was supportive. It was familial. The school had black hippies and they befriended her. This experience really opened her mind that there was more than one way to be black. It was okay for and her to white. love. <laughs> like yeah. white people, wasn't just white people. Yeah, it was a couple of white students in the school as well. Um, it was okay for her to love Joni Mitchell's folk songs and and love the soulful melodies of the stylistics. She could do it all as a black woman. Janet took the SAT, which is what they prep you for, to take the SAT and pass it. And she passed. Now it was time for her to select a college, but she wasn't ready. She still wasn't ready. She didn't have the mental capacity to jump into that. They just gave her a book and told her, go ahead, pick a college, any college. So she paging through. She's like, oh, I like that name. Oh, yeah, I like that name, too. That's all she did. So she's totally crazy to me. The whole purpose of the school is to prepare you for school and they ain't gonna help you pick a school. Yeah, no, and that crazy, but they just wanted you to get tests ready and show that you could pass that test. That seemed like it because they didn't help you that next step. They was like, the choice is yours. And she was really too young. I got to say she needed more support. Um, Let's see. So she wasn't ready, but she picked a school. I think the school she selected was Briarcliff or something. <laughs> it don't matter. I it was just a, a equestrian club, basically. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Where people went. It was a finishing school, she said, which yes. I thought was crazy. Yes, it was I've a never heard school. of an American finishing school. Me neither. That's well, why I ain't finished. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think so. So she went to the interview with the school. I think she got a... Uh, got in the cab and they dropped her off and you know so she's at the school waiting to get interviewed the lady comes out she's like be right with you young lady and the lady disappears and she comes back and <laughs> Janet, Janet got home. out <laughs> she was like pass hard pass and she was gone she was like I'm not doing this I'm going back to high school again and she did <laughs> I don't understand the system. You can't just hang out in high school. But But that is what she did. (laughs) That is what she did. She loved learning. She loved it. Okay. She She stayed didn't have anything else to do. (laughs) No, no. And then she also had the baggage of her that she created of this um, project girl label that she created for herself, that the projects were here. And this is the life that was going on in the projects. But she was supposed to be a college girl and she had a inward obligation to meet that goal. All right. So she stays at Harlem Prep a little longer, more schooling. So the push she needed to move on to college was given to her by the death of a classmate. He died of a heroin overdose and Harlem Prep decided, you know what? We're going to have this funeral at our school so you students can learn a lesson. Life is too short. Janet realized that life wasn't guaranteed, not even for the young black and gifted. And she decided to stop procrastinating and go to college. She selected Vassar, a private college in Poughkeepsie, New York. Jackie O School. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Her parents and her younger brother drove her up to the school. Janet was finally on her way. Janet had these boxes that she needed to fill or that she expected everybody to fit in. And so when she met these people at Vassar, they were like very different. They didn't meet the expectations at all. She was like, wait, wait, what? You, you, what? You speak, you from London and you black? Oh, oh, okay. You got horses, but you live in Harlem? (laughs) It was a lot of things going on in her mind. She just, you know, she wasn't prepared. And this was new exposure for her. Her new roommate wanted to put up curtains. And Jenna was like, ah, don't like curtains. She was like, oh, it'd be so great for us to have curtains. And Jenna was like, no, I don't do curtains. The roommate said, your room looked like an early prison cell. so nice she just wanted to make it pretty in there and Janet was like no this is the first time I have my own like area in a room because you know you're sharing a dorm and I'm gonna have it my way which is bear (laughs) 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 slash army slash prison yeah that's what it's gonna be she said I'll take it Just like Mm -hmm. this, just like this. As I mentioned, Harlem Prep didn't really prepare them for the day-to-day life of college um, about selecting a... um, what is it? So, uh, selecting a selecting degree. your classes, yep. your mm-hmm. um, track. None of that. No, yeah. None of that. Even um, interacting with like, I remember for my um, scholarship, I needed to take an etiquette class. Oh, <laughs> they wow. just made us do it, which in hindsight is low key racist. But we all had to take <laughs> etiquette classes. Anyway, the point is to prepare you for these meetings you're going to have, hopefully in your career. Did it and include- know which fork to use first. Oh, it did include that. Yeah. How oh, to chew wow. your food. Oh, wow. Oh, oh just saying it makes me oh. feel icky. Your school is race racist. <laughs> but you went there. Mind so your business. You- I got a different program. You was in the regular school and I was in a different school. And, mm. Mm. Ooh, race racist. <laughs> so Janet started, started feeling the issues that she felt at Erasmus. She was drowning. She started to compare herself to the students at Vassar. She was like, I did really well at Harlem Prep. I mean, I was getting A's and B's and now I'm here with these people. Can I really measure up? She questioned her abilities. Um, letters from home were, were not encouraging her oldest brother, Luke, had attempted suicide. Her sister, Jean, that's the youngest sister, was pregnant and left school. Anne's boyfriend was physically abusing her. And her younger brother had been chased from school by um, white boys carrying bats. This was truly depressing for Janet. She was depressed. She wanted to go to classes, but it was just difficult. She felt like she needed to suffer like her family suffered. So Janet turned to drugs. She started taking heroin and she shared some of it with her classmates. She started missing classes. She said that education took a backseat to her identity drama. Her best class was English, and it was taught by an instructor called Judy um, Kroll. And Judy, I think she was like one of the popular teachers. Uh, She had a book published of poetry. She already had her doctorate. She was a frequent visitor to India. She wore saris, shawls, and sandals to class. So that was the hip teacher. But this teacher befriended um, Janet. And it was like, oh, you, you know her? I mean, she barely talked to us. You know her? Yeah, so it was a a big, impressive thing to be connected or friends with Judy Crow. Um, Judy introduced Janet to new authors, but 
when Judy introduced her to these new authors, this opened Janet to explore other authors. So she, other authors, um, black authors, Angelou, Maya Angelou, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Morrison. And this allowed a larger identity to take place, expanding beyond the project girl mentality. Even still, Janet was very unhappy and in a depressed state and would come to attempt suicide. Um, she'd taken these, she went to the school. I can't remember what she went to the doctor for to, to get the pills, but they gave her some, oh, sleeping pills. They were for sleeping. So, yeah, sleeping pills. Mm-hmm. Um, so she ended up taking all these uh, pills, but she would later learn that they were placebo. Placebos. Um, yeah, she took them all and she and nothing was happening. Yeah. And she realized, yeah, the doctor was probably used to girls trying to commit suicide with sleeping pills. He was giving everybody placebos, <laughs> which, you know, kudos to him. Yeah, good, actually. good move, doctor. Good move. Ain't nobody being able to sleep, but at least y'all alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True, true. So she um, so she has kind of a breakdown. She's she's still suffering from issues, even though she didn't. Uh, her attempt at suicide didn't work. She's still suffering from issues and, and she eventually takes a leave of absence from Bassler. Janet fought with the opportunities that were open to her. She battled with herself about uh, what college would do to her. She wanted the benefits. She wanted these opportunities, but she didn't want to have to take on this identity and didn't want to become someone else. So despite the encouragement that she received from Instructors like Judy Crow, who she viewed, who Janet viewed as a mentor and a friend, who said, there's no doubt that you belong at Vassar. Janet still feared college would change her. Janet Crow told her that college helps you become more yourself and not anyone else. So when the semester grades came out, Janet saw that she had received a B in English and she felt like if I could get a B with all the turmoil that I've been experienced, imagine what I could do if I was in a peaceful state, in a more serene state. So Janet started seeing a psychologist, um, which at the time proved very unhelpful. So she decided she was going to run away from home and live in a commune um, before giving school another try. So she hopped on, a, she made plans, hopped in a ride with this man named Steve, and they were going to drive to Big Sur. Um, but Steve said, oh, I got some friends of him and stop over here. She was like, whoop. <laughs> this whole section was crazy. She was like, yeah. She like, are you going to kill me? Are you going to take me to your friend's house where they all going to kill me? <laughs> yeah, so we're seeing that Janet is not, that something may be a little, I hate to say off, right? But something in her is a little off. Right? Am I saying that right? Well, I don't know that she's off. She just lacks common sense. And that's what she would tease about um, a lot at, mm, in her book uh, learning youth. and no common sense. Yeah. That's what her mom would say. Okay. So I think that was more it. I, I never felt like she was off. But the depressive issues and the psychiatric issues that she did have really did have an effect on her. And that's, you know, that really does affect you. That didn't bother me. Trying to, you know, take, just end it all. That did not make me think she was off. Oh, okay. when she hopped in this truck (laughs) for no reason. She lacks common sense. I mean, I don't know And then I thought, oh, you something something wrong. The baby's touched. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. So she hops in the car with Steve. He drives. He's like, oh, I'm gonna go by my friend's house. She was like, oh. Is he going to kill me and stuff? Oh, so she meets these people. It's a couple, two couples and then a single parent family. And they are all devotees of this 14 year old. Uh, Girl, guru. they worship a 14 year old guru. <laughs> and she like, yeah, I'll try it. Seriously. 
That's what she did. She's like, yeah, I'll try worshiping this 14-year-old guru. Mm-hmm. No, nah, Janet off. Listen, <laughs> she just is. That's what, go ahead. She, she, is, she ended up staying with these people for a whole summer. She invited out her family. Like, hey, come and meet my new friends. This is a house full of white people, a Molly crew of white people that worship a 14-year-old boy from India, I think. Yep. So that's that. Yep. You ain't going to convince me she ain't touched. Go ahead. <laughs> This experience left her happier and more subtle than she had been in a year. Kyrie, how could she be touched? She was so much happier. Her oh. parents went to visit her at this house full of the Motley crew of white people that worshipped a 14-year-old boy from India. And they were like, okay, well, it looks like everything's okay here. Talk to you later. Bye. What a nice commune. <laughs> this was crazy to me. It was so crazy, you guys. It was so crazy, readers. Um, So she would take this experience back with her as her strength to start college anew. She now had a poster of the 14-year-old guru that she could put in her new dorm room. So in September, she returned to college ready to start. The time, um, this time, things had seemed easier. I mean, it was easier to register for classes and much to the chagrin of that teacher that was a problem and told her never to take French again. She signed up for French classes. Okay. She met a fellow. I was proud of her for that. Right. Mm-hmm. She met a fellow devotee of the young guru. Yes. Yes. She had <laughs> friends now. Okay. Um, and so <laughs> the relationship, however, with the guru, the, uh, can I just tell this part? Yes, please. Listen. <laughs> so, Janet and her friend go to Houston to the Astrodome because they the guru going to be there and everyone believes he's going to make the Astrodome a spaceship and the spaceship is going to fly into the sky. <laughs> she gets there, there's they like swaying, they're like all arm in arm and swaying, right? And then they're in line to meet the guru and she kisses his mama's little feet. And she said, I'm so happy nobody from the project saw me kiss that woman's feet. <laughs> um, s- spoiler alert, the Astrodome does not become a spaceship that flies into the sky. <laughs> so everyone leaves a little bummed. A little. And then also later, the guru marries a white girl from California <laughs> until her family kidnaps her and deprograms her. Okay, that's all. And that's also, what happens. Alexis, don't think this girl might be a little <laughs> off. I'm being delicate, just a little. She's obviously intelligent. Yeah. So after <sighs> Janet witnessed that, she kind of left the group. <laughs> <laughs> Janet said, um, okay, I'm going to go now. <laughs> Anyway, folks, Janet did well when she returned to school, but she started to regret um, the school breaks because she would return home and life was just so hard at home. The projects were becoming more drug infested and unsafe. She no longer had close friends there Um, because of her success in school. She decided she was going to apply for a study abroad program and to make sure that she was accepted. She finally declared a major. The major was going to be French literature. Um, She figured she'd change it to something more practical like psychology when she returned. Janet was selected for the program. Yay! So she gets to spend a year in France. When it was time for her to leave for Paris, most of the family was there to see her off. Luke, who had returned from a stint with the Navy, had moved to Greenwich Village and Um, Again, her older sister that was a bully was living on her own. She was juggling drugs, food stamps, eviction notices, and a newborn. 
In France, though, Janet felt liberated from that Vassar girl, project girl conflict that she was fighting. The French just saw her as another American, which kind of lifted the burdens that she felt for making African-Americans look good or bad. So during her time in France, she had many cross-cultural friends that were really eye-opening and helped her realize that people of color worldwide struggled with their own forms of racial turmoil. Can we emphasize this point? So if you are perhaps not of a minority, you might not understand that the way someone acts reflects not just on their family, but their entire race in any given situation. So if I'm the only black person at work and I do something good or bad, that affects how everyone in that environment views black people as a whole, because I may be the only black person they quote unquote know, although we don't even really know each other. So that's a lot of pressure to carry with you throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And in Paris, she could just be a generic American. Yep. (laughs) Good or bad, she wasn't representing an entire race. She wasn't even representing all Americans because where she was, was those people were familiar with having people from other countries. Mm -hmm. Their their life was more diverse than it is here. Yeah. Um, By the end of the year, she had fallen in love with French literature and read everything available on the experiences of African-Americans in Paris. She saw France as a haven from racism. She had learned to speak good French. She had other classmates that were there. They didn't learn it as well as she did. Janet decided she was going to go to law school and a graduate degree program in France. She applied to both and she was accepted. Yay. She was going to go to Cornell for law school and then uh, NYU. I think it was NYU who had the uh, the Paris program that she signed up for. She later graduated from Vassar. So now she's got a uh, three high school diplomas. OK, count them. <laughs> <laughs> and a degree, a college degree from Vassar. And she's on her way to doing, you know, big things. She's satisfying that. um college girl, your college material um, label that was put upon her. Part three, a year after she graduated from Vassar, she was home from Paris um, for Christmas holiday and her father dies of a heart attack. When she returned to Paris after her father's death, she ended up dropping out of the graduate program. She started law school at Cornell later and she found that law studies were extremely boring, boring and uh, compared with the life that she was living in Paris and her passion for the French literature. Um, and while she completed the first year, her grades at law school were very unimpressive. But she was able to find a summer job as a legal intern. And as she prepared to return to school for the second year of law school, she was raped on campus. This event plunged her into a nervous breakdown. The rapist was immediately apprehended and locked up in jail, and she was put in the hospital overnight. She saw a therapist at a local counseling center, but the therapist called her after a few weeks and told her she couldn't see her anymore and that she reminded her of her suicidal husband. When asked what happened to the husband, the therapist told her he finally committed suicide. The rape left Janet with such rage and that rage was coupled with depression and the feeling that she wasn't able to protect herself. So Janet was pushed to suicide. 
One day she was at a restaurant with her friends um, for dinner and she got up and she went to the phone booth and called 911 and asked them to pick her up because she was going to commit suicide. I accepted an invitation from some friends to go to a downtown diner. We all hoped it would give me momentary respite from my deepening crisis. In the middle of the meal, I excused myself and walked over to a payphone. Hello, 911? Send someone to the Ithaca Diner. I think I'm going to kill myself. I returned to the table and took my seat in silence. Within minutes, two policemen appeared in the diner. I stood up and was escorted away as a table of law school friends looked on in bewilderment. I asked to be taken to the on-campus infirmary and curled up in the back seat of the patrol car where I fell asleep. The sound of tires on gravel awakened me as the car came to a stop. The cops walked me into a building that I didn't recognize, exchanged a few whispered words with an attendant, and left me standing there at a state psychiatric hospital that was many miles from Cornell. No sooner was I inside that I regretted making the call. Slow-moving figures shuffled around in tattered, flimsy gowns, obviously hospitalized for the long haul. I, on the other hand, was processed during intake as a voluntary admit. The only nut who had asked to be locked up in this medieval asylum. In my cell-like room, I lay down on the thin mattress and stared at the donut-sized hole in the door. And I looked back at me through the opening. The police officers took her to this um, state psychiatric hospital where she became a voluntary uh, admit. Janet immediately regretted making the call. She presented when she presented when it was finally time. I guess the mandatory voluntary admit was three days and the doctors don't see you right away. It's a state hospital. So I think they saw her on, on the third day. So when she sat before the doctor, she told him, hey, look, that was an overreaction. Um, I've put the rape behind me. Um, I'm just eager to get back to school. But when Janet went back to school, she avoided her classes. She just did not have the strength and support she needed to continue on. There was a hearing for the rapist and this hearing was in a small room. So she was like seated inches away from the um, the rapist. The rapist was out on parole at the time of this uh, crime. The judge revoked his release only because he had a joint. It had nothing to do with the rape. The detective said, oh, don't worry about it. Um, he's in the middle of a divorce and he hates women. The judge does. Right. The judge. Then he, and then after he said that, he asked Janet out on a date. I think this is a bad time, but um, do you want to go out? Yeah. She was like, uh, bad timing, sir. So as Janet began to prepare for the trial, she had this growing desire to protect herself. So she started carrying a, a loaded 38 um, strapped to the cloth uh, strapped inside of her um, blouse. Her therapist was so committed convinced that she murdered the rapist on the spot if he was acquitted she terminated their therapy and panic saying i can't work with you janet i'm pro-life and you're pro-death uh janet of course filed a professional misconduct complaint the trial resulted in the rapist being sentenced and the prosecutor called to let janet know that they had won six months later janet was ready to go back to school or so she thought 
After the rape, Janet left Cornell Law School and was transferred to NYU to um, finish law school. She had a couple years left. The school had had issues with someone starting fires in metal trash bins. And these small blazes caused a commotion, caused a commotion among the students. And they were just, they were concerned. that They didn't know who was starting these. And of course, once the fire alarm is sounded, everybody has to rush out. Well, it turns out that Janet was responsible for starting these fires. Janet had um, provided a written statement to the police. They kind of, they coerced her. Is it coerced? Coerced, yeah. Mm-hmm. They can coerce her into um, making this statement. And of course, her. Um, Which, by the way, that's just what the police do, you guys. Yeah, that's what Never they do. Talk to the police without a lawyer present for any reason. Okay. Yeah. And so. Bye. <laughs> so she had a brother that had been in prison, Ernest. And so he was like, You'll never talk to the police. You don't tell them that's your wife's he said, side. Girl. Everybody know that. And I thought, Yeah, because even I know that. <laughs> Why'd you even let them in your room? Although the room does belong to the school if you're in the dorm, but mm-hmm. mm. yeah, so that it. was tough. So that um, because she provided that statement to the police, they booked her, set her up um, to be arraigned the next day. Um, she ended up being released on her own recognizance. And while in jail overnight, Jenna reflected. She said, I put the man behind bars with my testimony and he had put me behind bars with his violence we were both guilty but he deserved prison not me after the rape I'd found no help anywhere not at home because I couldn't talk about it at all not with friends because I talked too much and no strength could help help me cope with my anger and depression so who do you think was to come to Janet's rescue in this moment she needed a therapist that cared she had at this point like two. Yeah, she was at least two, like three therapists deep, and she had no desire to. She wasn't at the point where she was ready to move past this violence. Yeah, but they she was only been thinking able. of killing him. They could have stuck with her because it also doesn't sound like there were any referrals made. People were literally like just dropping her off. Now that's weird, right? Why are you I not so referring? Especially if she is suicidal and murderous. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, she's homicidal, suicidal, all the idols. Maybe you should refer her to someone if this is past your expertise. Yeah. And which it sounded like it was. It was past a lot of yeah. their expertise. Um, Janet went home and she had to face herself. She saw herself as a failure in all areas and help wasn't coming. She started receiving phone calls, um, some that were supportive. Others that were looking for an advantage uh, to take advantage of her misery. Her name and picture were published in the newspaper and the only black dean specifically named Janet in a flyer announcement to the school. The phone didn't stop ringing for weeks. Most of the calls were from Vassar friends offering support. One former Vassar friend took a different approach to my misfortune, finding a way to turn it to her advantage. She gave the Vassar yearbook to her editor at a New York newspaper so my graduation photo could run with the story. Mother became hysterical when she opened the newspaper. What are they trying to do to you? I was too numb to care. Did it really matter? Everyone knew anyway, thanks to the black dean. Dean Rawls' office has specifically named me in a flyer announcing the arrest and distributed it to the press and throughout the school. 
His move, approved at the highest levels of the administration, was sharply criticized by the Black Law Students Association. In an open letter to the school newspaper, they condemned the measure as being contrary to one of the most basic tenets of the law, the presumption of innocence. Arrest did not mean guilt. Discuss with the Rawls was particularly acute because he had not revealed the name of a white student suspended for falsifying grades when his office publicized that incident. He hadn't wanted to hurt her career, he said, and mine? It was thought that, as the lone black dean, Rawls had jumped at the chance to prove he would not be inappropriately black-friendly. I agreed and was as hurt by the administration's reaction as I was moved by the student's compassion. Still, I had done it and was willing to face the consequences. In fact, I wanted my punishment. I hoped it might ease the pain. Janet was banned from NYU campus. They wanted to prosecute her to the fullest extent possible, which meant giving her 25 years. In the end, she was given probation and the address to a psychiatrist. The rapist had lost his appeal, but because of her arson case, they would use her emotional turmoil against her and a new trial was granted to the rapist. But the district attorney refused to retry the rape case, even after Janet begged him and the rapist was released after serving three years of a 12 year sentence. He was now back in the street in the city that she lives in and she's infamous for setting fires in the school. So her name and whereabouts are like all over the papers and everything. Yeah, she would never feel Even safe. on television, they're talking about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Part four. Over the next year and a half, Janet tries to recover her life. She joins the Army National Guard in uh, 1982. You know, I was surprised she joined the the National Guard. <laughs> so this is where, I, I don't know, maybe she's a little off here for me because they're not going to accept you, okay? Once they do that background She needed check. some structure and they did put her through training and it seemed to help her at least having that structure and routine. Listen, she- And then they was like, oh, <laughs> the fires that everyone know about. No, we gonna discharge you honorably. Bye. Yeah, so she, she went into the military so she could learn how to use weapons, you guys, okay? Let's just get to that kill straight. her, uh, 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 the guy who assaulted her. Yes. That's all she thinks That's about. That's all at this point, she thinks about him. is killing him, so she could protect and herself. other rapists. Like she wants to be a rapist hunter, a vigilante. Yes, yeah. she does. Uh, um, she didn't pass the officer the background check. Okay, she had lied that the fires were <laughs> just uh, firecrackers at a wild party. Yeah, we was just throwing firecrackers. Nah, it was like it's a little bit more to that story. So they let her go. She had gotten a job as a paralegal in a law firm. Um, She had this little friend that she was working with and they were talking. It's like, we both have self-esteem. Well, let's just challenge that self-esteem issue by um, taking the Mensa test. Okay, we could do this. We're smart, even though we have low self-esteem. So they take the Mensa test, which is an international IQ uh, test. And they she passes because she physically took the test. So even though she's taken that, it still doesn't restore her. Um, nah, Mensa's low-key a joke. Yeah, <laughs> she still has these issues. You know, she's attempted suicide a few more times. She's gone through several more therapists. One doctor she saw told her that um, she had a lethal psychiatric disorder with a high morality rate, high mortality rate. 
And when she wouldn't make it five years. Yes. Right. He told her that her <laughs> prognosis to live beyond five um, beyond five years was in doubt. That's not going to happen. He said. Also, that he's the psychiatrist from um, the silent patient. I ain't <laughs> never heard of these people. Well, this is the wrong profession for you. If you're telling people, I don't think you're going to live past five years. Get a new job. OK. <laughs> and so this doctor is tied to this clinic that um, has rejected her as a patient. So, again, she's often being rejected. And even though they know all these things about her, he's made this assessment of her. They're not going to take her. And again, I'm not hearing in the book anywhere where they're making recommendations for her to go elsewhere. She is getting her uh, psychiatric care through the school system. This um, doctor, this clinic that she applied to to get treatment, they were separate. Eventually, she found a therapist that she could work with and that could help her on the road to very slow progress. That doctor's name was um, Bert, short for Bertucci. I don't know. Bert was the only therapist to give Janet the emotional support and help that she needed. Now, she did get mad at Bert a couple of times, but nonetheless, Bert was there for her the only one who seemed to understand and care for her. This set uh, Janet up to apply to journalism school. So she's going to go on to another track. She applied to Columbia Journalism School and was accepted. She also applied for readmission to NYU um, because Janet was a bold. (laughs) That was a bold move. I set y'all rooms on fire. I would like to come back, please. Please. Okay. Uh, she was determined to finish law school but hey she went through the interview process and they said okay we'll take it back so while she's going to school as a um, for this journalist school this graduate degree journalism school she's also working doing the work of a journalist so she's got some interviews lined up in the meantime the secret, what is it called? Secret security, special security, the ones that guard the president. U.S. Secret Service. Secret Service, that's the word. The Secret yep. Service detains her and accuses her of threatening to kill Gary Hart, a front runner for the 1988 Democratic presidential nomination. I mean, they held her up. They strip searched her. Hmm. You know, all the things that are very invasive they did to her. And this is someone that has survived a sexual assault. The government picks her up and does a cavity search without any explanation because truthfully, Nunners. the um, USSS operates outside of our judicial system. So they ain't got to read you your rights and all that. They just picked her up and told her to bend over. Pretty much. Um, I felt violated at this point. I was mad at everybody, too. It was quite offensive. Um, they made her mm-hmm. take a polygraph test. And I think shortly before completing the polygraph, she was like, I'm out of here. I'm sick of y'all. And she left. And eventually, I think she has some. She stuck around and finished it because they pressured her. And then they said it was inconclusive. Oh, that's right. She stayed from like she stayed like nine hours in that building, mentally unstable, taking a polygraph test, which ain't don't even really prove anything. Usually cannot be used in a court of law. And they said it was inconclusive and that she was strange for not wanting to take it. This is a mess. And Loki, I think she might have threatened him because I don't feel like she told us just straight out that she didn't do it. 
No. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. No, what she said was they probably picked it up because we was she was with her people and she said we're going to go shoot Gary Hart. So and with a camera. Yes, with a as camera. A journalist. And so they may have taken that wrong. She ain't got to own that. Her, she, she ain't got to own that. Hey, if I say I'm gonna shoot this guy with my camera, <laughs> you do what you want with that information. Sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. So even despite all the suicide attempts that going through different therapists, Janet graduated from Columbia uh, Journalism School, but she didn't have any honors, and that disappointed her. Jet, and she's so smart too she's really smart but she's got so much stuff going on in her life that makes it a challenge jenna started at nyu in the fall of that year she had applied for an internship with um, an international news agency headquartered in paris called afp and she was accepted she would spend her summer with two consecutive internships the first would be at newsweek and then the second would be in paris janet was always happy to go back to paris it was her happy place in, 1990, in 1985, Janet received a letter in the mail that the rapist had sued the state for wrongful prosecution since the state was obligated to release him and the prosecutor refused to retry the rape case. He wanted $20 million. Janet had to decide if she was ready to testify. She had decided instead that he needed to be dead. She would later find out that the rapist was back behind bars because he had hurt other people. The court should have never let him loose in the first place. Again, with all of this emotional turmoil going on, Janet graduated from law school or the <laughs> and she was offered a top tier, a job at a top tier law firm. And she graduated with honors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she was excited. She would have a job, money, an apartment of her own and her life would be hers. She said, I'm full of shrapnel, but determined to survive. Janet graduated law school, passed the New York bar exam, and went on the first try. On the first try, and went on to graduation in um, a 1956 Rolls Royce, sh chauffeured by a uniformed white man. <laughs> her family ran in. Yeah. And they all piled in and were screaming out the window, I'm Whitney Houston cousin. <laughs> it was great. They had a good time. <laughs> Yeah. Final part, <laughs> part five. After graduation, Janet begins her legal career working long hours. That's standard. Going home on weekends to keep in touch with her family. Janet was the only child of her parents in a financial position to help the family and help she did. She doled out money as if she was a philanthropist. She gave allowances, gifts, purchased clothes, paid for dental care. Whatever she could do, she did for her family. The neighbors from the projects looked up to her with pride. Her sister was battling a drug addiction, but she would show up at the office asking for money. To her job. To her J-O-B, y'all. Mm -hmm. All the while, Janet was under a great deal of stress, and she quickly realized that this was not the life she wanted. Janet decided that the rat race of New York put her under a pressure to be the best, and she just didn't want that. And the role of family savior, that was starting to take a toll. So she moved and found a job in Seattle, Washington. And then 10 years later, 10 years after her rape, Janet would have to return to New York to testify against her rapist. She said, a rapist once conquered me with brute force. It was my turn to vanquish him with the kind of strength that truly meant something. This time, the rapist lost. I love it. Yeah. Good. Although Janet <laughs> returned to Seattle, 
She was missing that style, culture, and beauty that Paris offered. So she began applying for jobs and she moved to Paris. Jenna said moving to Paris was a way of opting out of the struggle to be to belong. I have chosen to be a stranger. In Paris, she is free to focus her efforts on living who she is and not fitting into someone else's notion of who she should be. The end. Let's take a quick break. Okay, sounds good. So, Kari, mm-hmm. you heard mm-hmm. the retelling, you read the book. What's your final verdict and would you recommend it? OK, there are three things I want to mention about this book. Uh, the first is she writes in a way that I appreciate. It's very matter of fact. It's not about the words, but the story she's conveying. And I like that. She, I liked the way she wrote about her life. Um, second, a third of this book is short diary entries. And I did feel like she had kind of given up a little bit on um, I felt it was a lazy way out point is that what period. it is okay okay yeah yeah there's um a, a big chunk of this book that's just short diary entries that are saying the same thing where she's spiraling out of control she could have I, I don't blame her I blame her editor I feel like this could have been condensed in a narrative form as was the first part of the book and you could have conveyed the fact that you are unwinding or um, unraveling, excuse me, and that you all you think about is murdering your assaulter. You you could have conveyed that without all these diary entries that for me reading it put me made me your avatar in an uncomfortable oh, way. Oh, yeah. It was a, a it put me in a pit that nothing got me. It, it was impossible to get out of that once you pass these diary entries, because it's the same message repeatedly. Her despair, how lonely she is and how truly lonely. And she might not even realize how much people have failed her. <laughs> but it is oh, it, for me, it was overwhelming to to read to read just how much this one event um, solidified her demise in a way. And then when she moved to Seattle briefly after New York, she didn't feel like it was for her. So she moved to Paris. But then after Paris, we don't, I I mean, her, her issues are more internal. So I don't feel like Paris was the savior for her. And because we didn't get the story really of what that was like when she moved and really made it her home, I felt uneasy about the ending. I didn't feel like it was a proper ending for me, um, for the memoir. So uh, my final verdict is that this is my second time reading the book. And out of, you know, five stars, I would give it a solid three. But I do feel like her editor was someone else who failed her <laughs> in this case. It's just, I'm mad at everybody in her world, to be honest. Um, and I, I would not recommend this book. What about you? Okay, so... um. I, I saw that too and I couldn't understand um did she feel like it was easier told in this uh diary form because it was it was very repetitive and all you felt was the despair mm-hmm. I mean it was really hard to read that section um yeah And then, too, I would have appreciated her making mention of I wanted to know who she was romantically and sexually. I wanted to know that her her desires 
still existed before this assault, that she still that part of her as a person existed before this assault and after what it was like. And she doesn't talk about that at all. No, she never even mentioned like she might mention that someone was handsome or she ran into some beautiful boys in France. But she never talked about what her life was romantically. So and I don't mean like I wanted to be all in her business when I say sexually. I mean, that part of her. I don't I don't know. All I know about that part is this assault. And that, too, makes me uncomfortable. So um, does, does that make sense? Yeah. So the assault is not spelled out, um, written out. And I appreciate that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not detailed at all. Right. But I don't know if it's because I read other stuff about her. But I feel like I do know that she, um, yeah, I don't know. There was nothing. It's interesting you mentioned that you say you didn't know about her love life. I just, it was a mental thought that I had and it was quickly passing. It's like she doesn't talk about that at all, her relationships with other people. Who was the first boy you had crush a crush on? When was your first kiss? When you moved to Paris, did you ever marry? Did you have children? Um, did you ever adopt? Because you have mentioned that too. What 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 happened to you? I want to know what happened so to you. So why do you feel like that was important to include? Because this assault left such a heavy weight on me. I needed to feel like uh, this wasn't the beginning and end of her interactions uh, with the opposite sex in that in that way. I, I wanted to know that there was more to her before this. And I wanted to know what happened to that part of her after it. I felt like that would have completed the circle for me. But all I got was a girl, a woman eventually who used education as a distraction and never really dealt with her need to be um, desired, uh, appreciated, admired by other people and never and was never helped to deal with it. And then she moved to Paris. Hmm. You know, Yeah, I'm trying to think about what they said about. Do you know anything about her life in Paris? Did she ever have a family? No, it doesn't sound like she ever had a family. Um, I actually went across her obituaries and um, that were not. Well, it is the obituary and it's a lot of notes from the family. It looks like she just cared for her um, nieces and nephews in, in that in a motherly way, but not that mm-hmm. she had any family not, of her own, that she had a family mm-hmm. of her own. Um, I know that she moved. And that's fine, too. I want to know how you feel about that. Is that part of your how do you, how do you embrace that? How Who are you in this way? Yeah. And th- you know? and I know she even left Paris. I think she only stayed in Paris for several years, then went back to Washington and then went to Paris again. So that was interesting. So I feel like she maybe never settled, never was centered anywhere, never felt accepted. And maybe that's not true, but that's just what I was left to believe from the book. So, um, yeah, in the book, she, yeah, I guess she just, t- I, felt like when she landed in Paris that that was her happy place and yeah it doesn't spell out um the details of that but that's what made her happy she had a a group of friends and she wasn't burdened by the same things that she it was an escapism for her and it took care of the issues that she, she could leave behind the issues that she had it was truly an escape for her so and I felt like her issues were internal so wherever she went if she hadn't dealt with them and was never helped to deal with them, 
then those issues would just follow her and she just carry them to a new country. And what's the point of that? Well, the issue that I felt like was internal was mostly her identity crisis. And she said she didn't have to face that in um, in Paris. She didn't have to deal with um, those identity issues. <laughs> so, so would you recommend oh, it? Oh, okay. So you might have said it. I'm no, you're right. It. I didn't. And so I'm I, the reading of the diary section, and I feel like that was the majority of the book was so <laughs> draining. It's only probably like a third, if not a fifth, of the book. But if it, it's so heavy, right? It's very heavy. Now I don't think I need my friends to read that, but somebody else might like it. Who recommended this book to you? I wanted to read it after I saw, listen to her interview. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. I thought I recommended no, it. Okay. No, ma'am. No, okay, ma'am. You don't cool. have to take that on at all. <laughs> yeah, no. Because I, I, I thought I had to buy you flowers. <laughs> but it don't. <laughs> all right. So thank you for listening to episode 26 of the Lit Society podcast. What are we reading next week, Alexis? Mm, I think it's called The Complete Persepolis. That is right. It's a graphic novel, another um, nonfiction. And it's called The Complete Persepolis because it was originally published in volumes, as is common with graphic novels. We're, we're reading all of them, which you can find uh, bound together. Wait, wait. And I picked this up. It's nonfiction? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's a graphic novel? Yeah. Oh, this is going to be really interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. So we'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by uh, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love you. We love y'all too. Yeah, we do. If you've enjoyed what what you've just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. Also visit Love Lightetees, L-O-V-E-L-I-T-O-T-E-S to discover our luxury candle line that's inspired by literature. And until next time, you guys, read read something. something.